Good morning again. As we get going this morning, let's take another moment to go again before the Lord and pray and ask for his blessing. Father, we praise you for the truth that Jesus paid it all. It is the greatest evidence of your great love for us in Christ. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we think more about that love, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might marvel afresh at your grace and at your mercy and at your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Does God care? I think if we're honest... There are moments in each of our lives, however brief they may be, where we're tempted to look at the world and to wonder, does God care? There's violence in the world. There's oppression. There's injustice. There is weeping and sorrow. And we look at the world and we wonder, does God care? It's the question, right, that we've been thinking about for the last number of weeks in Ecclesiastes. You look at the world, you look at the way the world works, and you have to ask the question, does God care? Does he care about all the things going on in the world? Does he care about all of the suffering? Does he care about the reality of the toil that we endure? Sometimes it's hard for us to tell. And for some, not all of us, that question takes on a a deeper and more personal form, doesn't it? We're not simply asking, does God care? We're actually wondering, does God really care for me? In light of who I am, in light of what I've done, can God really care for someone like me? In light of the present circumstances of my life, does he really care? Is he engaged? Is he attuned to what's going on? Is he listening? Does he really understand my problems? Well, as you know, the Bible answers that question with a resounding yes. Yes, God cares. He cares deeply for the world that he's made. He cares deeply for every single person that he's created to dwell in it. And we get a profound glimpse of that care in our passage this morning. And my hope is that you're going to walk away from our time together this morning with a deeper, more profound realization of the truth that God cares and that he cares specifically for you. So with that, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 24 to 37. And as you turn there, let me give you just a a bit of an idea of where we are in Mark's gospel because we're jumping in right in the middle of everything that's been going on in Jesus' ministry. So our passage for this morning comes on the heels of an important passage in Mark that Brad preached for us uh, just a few weeks back. In it, Jesus begins to tear down the wall that separated the Jewish people from the rest of the world, the wall that separated Jew from Gentile. Jesus takes a question that comes to him about hand washing and he turns it into a conversation about the uncleanness of the human heart. 
It's not our hands that ultimately need washing. It's our hearts. And that's not just a a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. Every single one of us needs a clean heart. And what Jesus does in pointing us to this reality is to, to level the playing field, if you will, for all humanity. The Jew is no better than the Greek, than the Gentile, when it comes to matters of the heart. Every single one of us has an unclean heart that needs to be cleansed by Jesus Christ. We all, all of us, have a need that only Jesus can meet. And what we come to find in our text is that Jesus came to meet that need for all. And so that's where we are this morning. We've got two different accounts. We're going to take them one at a time. um, But I'm going to read the whole thing as we begin. So starting in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, from these two stories, I've got two points this morning. It's basically point one is first story, point two is the second story. So point one, an unlikely conversation. And what we learn in this conversation is the truth that Jesus came for all. So the the story begins with Jesus going away. Away from the crowds, away from the Pharisees, even away from Israel to a place called Tyre and Sidon. So for an Israelite, this was about as far as you could get away from all the publicity and all of the crowds because it was a place that the crowds wouldn't follow, at least not the Israelite crowds. This was Gentile territory. It was a, a, the northern part of the area above Israel. Interestingly, a part that was never a part of Israel. Neither David nor Solomon never conquered this area. So we're talking not just Gentile, but entrenched Gentile territory. So Mark doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus went away, but it appears that there were at least a couple of reasons. 
First, he, he clearly wanted to get some rest and a break from the crowds, right? You look at verse 24, and we're told he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. And Jesus was really trying to get away. But it also becomes clear that he intended to get away to invest some time in his disciples, into teaching the 12. And we, we see this really from the fact that this is the only incident that Mark records from this entire time he was there. We don't know how long he was there, but this is the only thing we know about what happened. And in what happens, there is a very particular lesson that Jesus is intending to teach his disciples, to teach us. And it's a lesson that he would begin to teach them here, but one that they're going to have to spend a lot of time, even after he rises and ascends to heaven, learning. Right? This is the same lesson that Peter had to learn in the dream when the sheet comes down and Jesus says, rise, take up and eat. And it's that same lesson, but it starts here. It starts in Tyre. So they get away. They get away to, to Tyre and Sidon, but Jesus could never really get away. Right? No matter how much he may have wanted to escape the public eye, Jesus, it says in verse 24, could not be hidden. Right, news of his ministry had already spread far beyond the borders of Israel and into Tyre and Sidon. And from the Gospels, we know that this happened rather quickly. So if you go back, and you don't need to turn there, but if you go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 8, we're told that when Jesus was teaching at the Sea of Galilee, there were people coming to him all the way from Tyre and Sidon. People had heard, news had spread, and people were coming. They wanted to see, they wanted to hear this man. And so... Jesus gets to Tyre and to Sidon, and it's likely that when he arrived, someone, someone who had seen him at the Sea of Galilee, spotted him. And word started to spread. And he couldn't, he just couldn't be hidden. And this was true of Jesus' life the entire time he was on earth, the, the, the entire time of his ministry. And, and something, just as an aside, that I, I think should also be true now right, in the lives of people like you and me. Would you say that phrase about Jesus' presence in your life, he couldn't be hidden? As believers, we know, right, that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, it ought to be that people see and hear something of the presence of Jesus in our lives. If Jesus is in us, it ought to be visible, right? He shouldn't be hidden. As Jesus himself put it, we're to be salty people, right? We're the light of the world. That light can't stay hidden. You can't put it under a basket. When the world looks at us, it ought to be evident that Jesus is in us. Because wherever Jesus goes, Jesus can't be hidden. He couldn't be hidden in Tyre and Sidon. And so as he arrives, news spreads and it reaches the ears of a woman. A woman whose daughter, Mark tells us, was possessed by what he describes as an unclean spirit. There in verse 25. And that word unclean starts to hint at the connection between this passage and the one that came right before when Jesus declared all foods clean. All right, so you've got unclean and clean being contrasted here. Jesus declared 
all foods clean. He was the one who could take and remove the uncleanness, right? Take the unclean and make it clean. And so we hear that this girl has an unclean spirit, and we start to see what's about to happen, right? And the connection just grows stronger when Mark tells us more about the mother of this poor little girl who was possessed. So look at verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. The, the woman herself, it's not just the spirit in her daughter, the woman herself, as Mark describes her, is unclean. Right? As one commentator I read put it, this description of her reads like a crescendo of demerit. Now you have to remember that this is a world, the world in which Jesus lived, in which rabbis woke up each morning and prayed a prayer that went like this. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was the prayer that they prayed. And in that world, Mark tells us that this was a woman, strike one, a Gentile, strike two. And not just any Gentile, right? A Gentile from the region known for its extreme paganism. She was a Syrophoenician, strike three. And then add to that the fact that her daughter had an unclean spirit. And from the perspective of, this, of the Jews, this woman was as far from clean as anyone that Jesus had ever encountered in his ministry. And just as Jesus and his disciples are sitting down in the house, finally about to get some respite, this woman barges through the door, defies all social norms, falls at Jesus' feet, and begins begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And, and when Mark says she begged, he means she begged repeatedly, persistently, passionately, to the point that Matthew, in his recounting of this story, tells us that the disciples got so annoyed by it that they came to Jesus and actually begged him to send the woman away. It was that kind of begging, that kind of pleading. She was desperate, right? She was so desperate that she was willing to throw aside cultural norms in order to come to Jesus and to plead for the life of her daughter. Right? This was a mama who loved her baby girl. A mom convinced that Jesus was her only hope. Parents, do you pray for the souls of your kids the way that this woman begged for the life of her daughter? Persistently, passionately. No, they're not possessed by an unclean spirit, though at times it may feel like it. But if they're not believers, it's actually far worse than that, right? They're slaves to sin and death whose only hope of deliverance from hell is Jesus Christ. And that ought to lead us to, to daily plead with him, to show them mercy, to show them grace, to cleanse them from their sin the way that this woman pleaded with Jesus to heal her daughter. And she's begging. And in verse 27, Jesus responds to her pleas, but, but he doesn't respond in the way that we might expect. Right, so on the one hand, you might have expected Jesus, as a good Jew, to simply reject this unclean Gentile, right, to send her away. It's what the disciples wanted him to do, send this woman away. More likely, though, because we know Jesus, we would expect him to just simply grant the woman's request, right, to go with her to the girl and heal her, simply to say to the woman, go away, your daughter's been healed. But Jesus doesn't do either of those things, at least not immediately, 
Right? Instead, Jesus starts giving this woman instructions about dinner. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Very clear instructions about how to feed your children and when to feed your dogs. Right? Okay. Not what we expect. Right? It's, it's, it's an analogy. And it reminds me of, of, of my fourth birthday. And so on my fourth birthday, we got a dog. It was not what I wanted for my birthday, but it's what we got. We got this little cocker spaniel named Buffy, or Sir Buffington of Brian was his actual official name. He was a, a show dog. Um, and so we get this dog, and we bring him home, and we're going to celebrate my birthday, my fourth birthday. We've got pizza. We sit down to dinner, and... All of a sudden, the phone rings. And for those of you growing up in this strange world in which we live in, there was a day in which when you answered the phone, you actually had to go to a different room to talk on that phone, right? You couldn't just simply pull it out of your pocket, say hello. So my entire family gets up. It's my grandparents. We go to the other room, and we're having a conversation with them. Well, we get back from having that conversation, and guess where this new puppy dog is? He's on the table. He's eating my pizza, my birthday pizza. And I'd like to say that I forgave him. <laughs> but ask my wife if she ever thinks that I'm going to let my kids have a dog. Um, <laughs> so, so he ate my pizza, right? And, and, and it was frustrating. But, but think now, just, just enter into this picture for a moment. Think about how I as a child would have felt if instead of the dog jumping on the table to eat my pizza, my parents would have looked at me, taken it off of my place and said, no, we're not giving this to you. We're going to give it to the dog. And that's the, the, the picture that Jesus is painting here, right? But he's not actually talking about dinner. He's talking about something far more profound, right? The bread that Jesus is talking about is actually himself, it's, it's, it's his ministry, it's the healing, the miracles, the preaching, eventually the cross and resurrection, right? The bread is the bread of life. It's Jesus Christ. The children are the people of Israel, right? The children of God. And the dogs here are the Gentiles, a name that would have often been used as a derogatory term speaking about the Gentiles, or to the Gentiles. Now, we want to be really careful here because Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Okay, so before we, we put a, a phrase in Jesus' mouth being used in a derogatory way towards a person, okay, we got to pull back and understand this is a metaphor. Jesus isn't using it in a derogatory way at all. There are actually two different words for dog in Greek. One of them is a wild dog, a mangy mutt. The other is a household pet. Jesus is using the language of the household pet, not the language of the mangy dog. He's not intending to offend the woman here, but to make a very specific point using words that she would have been able to understand and comprehend. And the point of what Jesus is saying is this. Jesus came into the world as the Jewish Messiah. Let the children be fed first. 
He came to his own people. He came to the Jews. In God's sovereign wisdom, his earthly ministry was focused entirely on them. I mean, just think about it for a second. He came to Tyre and Sidon to do what? To preach? To heal? No. To get away. To rest. He went into Gentile territory not to do ministry, but to rest from it. He came to rest from his ministry to the Jews. Jesus had a a very specific mission he was sent to fulfill on earth. And the woman, in asking her, or asking him to heal her daughter, was actually asking him to go outside of the bounds, if you will, of that earthly ministry that Jesus had been sent to do. But that's not the entire point of what Jesus says. Notice again what he says, let the children be fed first. Right? Jesus had come to the Jews, but there was coming a day when his ministry, the good news of the gospel that he proclaimed and demonstrated, would come to the Gentiles. This is exactly what God had always intended to do. I mean, think about the promises, some of the promises he made in the Old Testament. Genesis 12, 3, talking to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah, speaking of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 49.6, says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? This is God speaking through Isaiah. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And as Melissa read this morning in Psalm 2, the nations would be his heritage. Jesus wasn't saying no to this woman. He was really saying wait. He had come for Israel, but the gospel was good news for everyone. It was good news for all. So Jesus says wait, but the woman persists. And it's not simply because she loves her daughter. It's also because she believes something really, really important about the character and nature of God that comes out in her answer to Jesus' statement. Look again at verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she begins by agreeing with Jesus, even calls him Lord. Yes, Lord. She understands who Jesus is. She understands that his mission is to the Jews first. She gets it. But she knows something else. She knows that the grace of God always overflows its bounds. God is a God who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. And this is, this is true. We, we know it's true for a number of reasons, but we actually see its truth in Mark, and it's, it's fascinating because there are two stories that kind of bookend this period of Jesus' ministry. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Right? In both stories, Jesus feeds a crowd. He feeds them bread. What happens at the end of each of those stories? Everyone eats their fill, and the disciples go and pick up basket after basket after basket after basket of crumbs. Right? So when the grace of God comes, when the mercy of God comes, there's always more grace to be had more grace to be found. And Jesus, 
here is using the analogy of bread. The woman picks up on it, and she understands there is more than enough bread to go around. It was true with the real bread, and it's true with the bread of life. And so the woman, knowing the superabundant, the overflowing grace of God, she enters in to Jesus' metaphor, right? He says, you want to talk about dinner? Let's talk about dinner. And so she enters in, and in faith, she asks for a crumb from off the table. Right? It's helpful to see here. I think you can think that Jesus is being rude to this woman. He's not. What he's doing in this moment and telling her to wait is actually testing her faith. In telling her to wait, he's giving her an opportunity to show the genuineness of her faith in him. And in that moment, in the moment that she's told to wait, that's the moment that her faith shines forth. It's true for her, it's true for us. There are times in our lives where the Lord tells us to wait, no matter how bad we want something. And in that moment, it's not a lack of love from him, but actually it's a great demonstration of his love because it's going to show forth the genuineness of our faith, and that's exactly what happens in the life of this woman. She expresses her faith, and when it's expressed, what does Jesus do? In the abundance of his grace, he answers and grants her request. Verse 29, he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So at the heart of this story, and we don't want to lose this, is God's heart for the nations. Jesus never had to leave Israel, but he did. He went into the heart of this pagan country, and when we think about the reality, as I mentioned earlier, that this, this story, this story is the only story from his visit there, the only thing we know about it. We come to quickly understand that the point of this encounter really is the point of his trip, Why did Jesus go to Tyre and Sidon? Was it to rest? Yes. But was it much more than that? Oh, yes. It was to show his disciples and to show us that the gospel is for all people. The grace of God in the gospel is for all nations, for all peoples. The bread of life is for all God cares for all people, for Jews, for Gentiles, the clean, the unclean, for men, for women, for pagans, for the religious. The Father sent the bread of life to the children first, but that bread is more than enough for the whole world. And friends, that that reminds us of the truth that is so, so important, I think increasingly important in our day, that there is no one on this earth who is beyond the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The most unclean of the unclean was this woman, and yet God's grace extended to her. There is no soul beyond saving. There is no person outside the bounds of God's reach. We live in a world that is increasingly divided. Even as Christians, we can start to succumb to this kind of us versus them mentality when we look at those in the world. And in doing so, we can become a whole lot like the Israelites of Jesus' day. 
right? Us clean, them unclean. Gospel for us, not so much for them. We don't want to go down that dangerous road. Jesus makes it clear the gospel is for all. This is a call for us to remember that God's grace reaches farther than you and I could ever imagine. If it's reached you, if it's reached me, then it can reach anyone. And that should lead us to pray boldly. It should lead us to pray persistently for God to save, to save those, especially those that we're tempted to think are beyond his reach. It should lead us, too, to sow the gospel broadly, to share the bread of life with everyone we can because we have no idea who's hungry. Jesus came for all people. That's the point of, of this first story. So does God care? This first encounter answers in the affirmative, yes, God cares for all people. But for some of us, it may not necessarily answer the second question. Does God care for me? I think you could walk away from this encounter between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman agreeing that God cares, right? believing that the gospel is for all people, and, and yet seeing Jesus is somewhat detached from this woman, even though he commends her faith and heals her daughter. Maybe Jesus cares, but just at a distance, Maybe he cares for all, but he's not that concerned about me. Well, the second encounter tells us, no, that's not the case at all. God doesn't just care for all. He truly cares for you. So look at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So this encounter takes place on Jesus' way back to Galilee after his time in Tyre and Sidon. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't head straight home. So there's a path that he could have traveled. He chose not to. He kind of goes like this and over to the Decapolis, this area that's not Necessarily all Gentile, there were many Jews there, but a predominantly Gentile region of 10 cities. And, and Jesus comes here, and as just had been the case in Tyre and Sidon, Jesus can't be hidden. Right? The crowds gather again, they gather around him, and they bring him a man who Mark tells us was deaf and had a speech impediment. The NIV says he could hardly speak. And like the woman who begged Jesus to heal her daughter, the crowd begs Jesus to heal this deaf man. And though it's hard to know for sure, it's likely, given the way that, that Jesus talks to and the way that Mark talks about the crowds, it's likely that the crowd was begging Jesus to do this not so much because they loved the man, but rather because they wanted to see the miracle. Jesus, though, on the other hand, 
wasn't concerned about the miracle. He was concerned about the man. So Jesus takes him aside. He takes him away from the crowd. He takes them to a private place, right? And taking him aside from the crowd privately. Now what happens next is strange, to say the least. Um, it is not a pattern for us. Okay, so let me just get that out of the way from the beginning. You are not going to heal deafness this way. You're not going to heal anything this way. You're not going to heal COVID this way. All right? So this is not something that we're supposed to be doing. Uh, there's a lot more going on here, though, than initially meets the eye, and I want us to see that. Okay, so, so this man was deaf and had a speech impediment. Okay? So, so what that means is that, that he was deaf, he could not hear, and because he could not hear, he could not speak. He could make sound, but that sound was not anything intelligible. Right? That's, that's the picture of this man. Interestingly, this is the only person in the Gospels whose deafness and inability to speak are not explained by the work of demons. So whether this man was born deaf or he became deaf at a young age, we don't know. But what we do know is that his deafness was the result of something natural, not something supernatural. Right? It was a disability, not a demon that this man had. And that being the case, Jesus treats him very differently than he does the others he encounters who are deaf and mute. He doesn't immediately heal him with a word or simply lay a hand on him to heal him. That's what the crowd wanted. And that's because he knows that this man cannot hear. So Jesus pulls him aside. He pulls him away from the crowd. He gives him all of his attention. Something that up until this day in his life, it's likely that very few people had ever done for him. And just think about it for a minute. What would it have been like to be deaf and mute in Jesus' day? In some ways, it's probably not too different than uh, the experience that a, a young man that I know named Max had when he was a child. Max grew up in an orphanage in the Ukraine. Max is deaf, to this day, unable to speak plainly. And growing up in the orphanage in the Ukraine, Max was neglected. He wasn't able to talk like the other kids. He wasn't able to understand. They weren't able to understand him. And Max at the age of five, was only able to communicate two things. He could tell the workers that he needed to go to the bathroom, and he could tell the workers that he was hungry. Five years old, that's the only communication that he had. Though surrounded by people, surrounded by kids, surrounded by workers, Max was alone. But praise God, Max was adopted. Sorry. He was adopted by an amazing couple um, that Jamie and I know, dear, dear friends of ours. And they have sought to love and to show Max the love of Christ. He's been surrounded by men and women in the community of Christ who have labored to love him, to care for him, to pour the gospel into his heart, to communicate with him, to teach him sign language, to learn it ourselves. Sadly, as far as I know, Max is not yet a Christian. Um, and so I do pray that the Lord would, would do the work um, that he's done in this man in the story in Max's heart. 
But Max's experience of being loved as a five-year-old and experiencing that kind of community was probably not the case for this man in the crowd. His entire life was probably a lot like that first five years of Max's. It's hard to know for sure. It's likely that he was a societal outcast known by everyone, but not really engaged by anyone. So what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just pull him aside. He pulls him aside and he engages with him personally. It appears that what Jesus is doing is seeking to communicate to the man what he's about to do. So look at what he does in verses 33 and 34. He puts his fingers in this man's ears and then pulls them out. What's he trying to say? I'm going to open your ears so that you can hear. He spits and then touches the man's tongue. What's he saying? I'm about to remove the impediment from your mouth. He looks up to heaven, makes it clear to the man that this healing that's about to happen is a work of God. And he sighs, likely a sorrow of frustration, not at the fact that he's having to heal, but at frustration at the brokenness of the world. The reality that he knows more than, better than anyone else, how many people in the world are broken like this man. And then Jesus does the only thing he needed to do. He speaks a word, ephaphtha. And in that instance, the man is healed. Right, verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. All it took was a word. Jesus didn't need to do any of the other stuff. The rest wasn't for the sake of the healing, right? It was for the sake of the man. And what we're supposed to see in this is the compassion of Christ, the love that he has for this one man, right? He doesn't just heal him. He loves him. He doesn't just want the man to hear and to speak. He wants him to know and to understand the love and care and power of Jesus so that he might know Christ and follow after him. And he could have healed without a word. He cast the demon out of the Syrophoenician's daughter without doing anything. But he didn't. He was concerned personally for this man. And all that he did, every single bit of it, was intended to communicate Jesus' love, his care, his compassion. He wanted him to know his love. So I want us to dwell here for a bit and think about what this incident tells us about who God is and what he's like. Jesus' actions show us something of God's heart. And first, we we see and I don't want us to miss this, God's heart for those with disabilities. Though around 17% of people in the world are born with a disability, it's not something that we talk a lot about, even though the Bible speaks about it quite often. Often when we read and think about the healings that Jesus did, a healing like this, we immediately run to the spiritual, right? We're all deaf to the gospel. We all need the Lord to open our ears. Amen, it's true, we're about to get there. But, but, if we run there too fast, we can miss the truth that Jesus in healing this man and so many others with disabilities throughout his ministry was showing us God's heart 
for those people. Jesus didn't shy away from this man. He didn't ignore him. He didn't just smile and move on. Jesus didn't treat him or any that he encountered the way the world around them did. No, Jesus saw them as divine image bearers, men and women made by God, knitted together in their mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 13 and 14. They were made by him to know him, to love him, to worship him. They were made, as he tells us in John 9, 3, that the works of God might be displayed in them. They were made to display his glory to the world. Friends, we we live in a world, sadly, in which those born with disabilities are increasingly seen as a burden, as an inconvenience, something to be avoided, a problem to be solved by gene editing or abortion, rather than as divine image bearers that God calls us to love and to cherish, to embrace to engage with, to care for, to advocate for, to preach the gospel to. And God has a heart for those with disabilities, and brothers and sisters, so should we. If you're wondering what exactly that might look like, I want to encourage you to go to the church website. Go to the September 2019 perspective article that Kevin Vauder wrote entitled, Seeing God's Glory in Disability. Uh, Very, very helpful article in it. Kevin talks about some ways that we as a church body can care for those with disabilities in our midst and also care for their families. And if you'd like to find out how you might be involved in serving those with disabilities here at Mount Vernon, I want to encourage you to reach out to Lena Vodder, who works on our children's ministries team um, in our, uh, on that team as our special needs coordinator helping us as a church think about how we can care best for those with special needs and how we can pour the gospel into their lives. So in Jesus' encounter with the deaf man, we see God's heart for those with disabilities. Don't want us to miss that. We also see God's heart in Christ's care and compassion for the individual. So, so, brothers and sisters, what we see in Jesus' encounter with this man is a picture of how he cares for each one of us. It's a picture of salvation. In Christ, it's a picture, if you're in Christ, it's a picture of how he has cared for you. Right? Just like this man, he's come to you personally. He's set you apart. He's met you at the point of your need, your greatest need. He's communicated his love and his care to you through the gospel, through others, through the church. And he's miraculously opened your mind to understand, your ears to hear and receive the good news of the gospel. And it's not just at salvation that Jesus cares like that. He continues to care for you personally, intimately, tenderly, day by day, in a myriad of ways. At times, it's engaging with you just like he did the man who was deaf, going out of his way to tenderly communicate his love and his care. At other times, it's more like the Syrophoenician woman, calling you to wait because he knows what's best for you, seeking to see the genuineness of your faith grow more and more beautiful. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He knows your needs before you ask. He knows that you are but dust, and he cares for you. 
personally, tenderly, compassionately. And brothers and sisters, Jesus cares for all, and that means that if you're his child, he cares for you. And, and what a disservice we do to Christ when we refuse to believe that that's true. And be like the woman hearing Jesus' words and walking away discouraged because she didn't hear that word first. Be like the man pushing Jesus' hands away because he couldn't understand what he was doing. In Christ, you're loved. He cares for you more than you can fathom. So much so, brothers and sisters, that he willingly went to the cross to die for your sin. That's how much he loves you. He loves you then and he loves you now. That's how much God loves you. Think of Romans, right? If he's loved us this much, how much then will he not in Christ give us all things? He loves us. He loves us. He loves us. And it's something that we need to remember as his people. That truth is at the heart of the gospel. Right? We love because he first loved us. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loves us tenderly, intimately. We can't lose sight of his compassion. He cares for us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God cares for all. I want you to know that he cares for you, so much so that he was willing to send his son into the world to live the life that you should have lived, to die the death that you should have died in order to demonstrate his love for you. But here's the deal. To understand the love of God for you, you first have to understand the reality that you're a sinner that doesn't deserve that love. God made you to worship him, to know him, to love him, to live for him, and you've not done it. You've rebelled. You've chosen to go your own way. You've rejected the love of God. And because of that, you deserve his wrath. You deserve his judgment. You deserve to spend an eternity in hell far, far away from his love. But God, in his great mercy, in his kindness, in his compassion, in his tenderness, sent his son Jesus Christ in the world to live the life that you should have lived, to die the death that you should have died. And he calls you to receive that love by repenting, by turning away from your sin, turning to Christ and trusting in him. So the call for you this morning is to receive God's love, to repent, to believe, to believe that he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. If you want to know more about that, you want to talk more about that, know that I or anyone here, honestly, would love to talk more with you about that. So Mark sums things up for us at the end of chapter 7. Look at verse 36. The man is healed, and Jesus charges them, the crowd, to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So after healing the man, Jesus takes him back to the crowd. And when Jesus takes him back to the crowd, now hearing, speaking plainly, he knows that they're going to be astonished, and so what does he do? He tells them to tell no one. <laughs> Why? Because he knew that they didn't really understand what had just taken place. Right? The crowd thought that they were witness to the most amazing magic show they had ever seen. Right? Way better than Penn and Teller, way better than David Blaine. 
It was incredible. They looked at it as an astonishing miracle, right? They were astonished beyond measure. But it was so much more than that. And as they marveled, interestingly, the crowd speaks far better than they understood. They say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Unknowingly, what they were doing was proclaiming something very similar to what Isaiah had spoken more than 700 years before. When he prophesied the coming of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, when the Lord would come to his people and bring salvation to them. Isaiah said on that day, the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the mute sing for joy. And Jesus was far more than a magician, far more than a miracle worker. He was the Lord himself, the savior of the world. And in opening the ears and loosing the tongue of this man, he showed us just what kind of savior he is. One who loves and shows compassion to all. Our God and savior who does all things well. Does God care? Does God care for you? Yes. Yes, he does. He's a God who cares for all. He's a God who cares for you personally, profoundly. And we see all the evidence we need of that love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, may we who know far better than the crowd be more zealous than even they were. May we, like them, all the more zealously proclaim this truth. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks for that truth. Father, we marvel at the truth that you love us, that you would love us at all. Father, I do pray for, for each and every one of us that we would understand that love more fully. I pray for those in our midst, to those watching online who do not know that love personally. Oh, Father, would you open their eyes to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior? Would you open their hearts to see that you have loved them in Christ, sending your own son to die that they might live? Father, would they receive your love, I pray today, for your glory. May we receive it as your people that we might glorify and honor you more. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.